This is Starting Up with Tom Urquhart and Virtue Zone. Dubai Eye 103.8. Indeed, it is starting up with me, Richard Dean, in for Tom Urquhart today and for the next three weeks as well, joined by the Group Commercial Director of Virtue Zone today, Paul Bryson. Morning, Paul. Good morning, Richard. How are you? I'm awesome, mate. Thanks very much indeed. Good to have you with us. We have got a busy show today. Our theme is focusing on business plans. Are they essential tools or a complete waste of time? How do you make a good one? What do you need to put in it? Going to get a range of expert opinions. Paul, of course, but also speaking with business coach Hazel Jackson, founder and CEO of Biz Group, about where to start. And we're going to hear from Shane Shin, founding partner at Sharuk Partners, about what investors are looking for when it comes to a business plan. All that to come. Don't forget, we'd love you to join the conversation this morning. Ping us a message. You can take our Twitter poll as well, looking at business plans at Dubai I1038FM. Questions for the company clinic as well. All that to come. You're listening to Starting Up with Tom Urquhart and Virtue Zone on Dubai I1038. But first, we take a look at some of the big stories making headlines today. Well briefed. The business stories you need to know this week. Paul, this was a big one on the business breakfast this morning. A new professional license has been introduced in Abu Dhabi. It's giving foreigners full ownership of businesses related to, get this, 604 different activities. I'd like you to spend the next hour listing all 604, please. (laughs) No, you don't have to do that. But what do you make of this? We've seen a number of these initiatives, haven't we, over the past few months, maybe even years? Yeah, definitely. I would say it's it's for sure it's over the last few years. And and what happens is we wake up one morning and we find that something like this has has, has happened overnight. Um, I think we need to look uh, underneath the hood a little bit, right, scratch the surface here and find out exactly a little bit more about it. Um, The one thing I would say is uh, proceed with caution uh, and there'll be something else there that we don't know about. For sure in Abu Dhabi, you've always been able to own professionally licensed companies 100% as an expat anyway. Uh, the, The great thing here, which could be the case, is if you could own these as an LLC and limit your liability as a shareholder. Whereas I guess that, yes, you can own them 100%, but you're going to have unlimited liability, and that's a bit of a risk. Okay, that's that could be a game-changer, couldn't it? But we haven't seen the, the small print yes on this one. We haven't seen it. But uh, if we flip it to Dubai, what we have seen in the small print is you can own some LLCs now 100% as an expat, so you are getting the best of both worlds at the minute in Dubai. So at the moment, if you're a, a professional company in one of these 604 car- um, categories in Abu Dhabi, what, what are typically the routes that people use at the moment? What are the structures that they have in place if they're expatriates or majority-owned expatriate businesses? Uh, typically, depending on the advice they get, if sometimes they don't take any advice, they might speak to a friend who's in business uh, and, and they'll share practice that they used 10, 15 years ago, which probably isn't fit for purpose today. Um, usually they'll own these companies 100% in their own name with a local service agent. So they'll pay that local to be there um, as their administrative face between them as the gov- and the government, if you like, um, f- for a fixed annual fee. But what they don't realise is they've got unlimited liability. So they own these companies. Anything goes wrong, they're personally and criminally liable in their own name. And this is probably not the place where you want to have that risk. So, so you can mitigate that. So you can mitigate it. And I guess companies like VirtuZone, that, that's the kind of thing that you do, isn't it? Yeah, that would probably be where we, where we kind of start. Right, The first thing we'll look at is... What's the product or service and where's the market for that? And then we'll look at, okay, let's put a proper legal structure in place that protects you, uh, protects and mitigates any risk that you might have as an individual. And look at where you want to be in two, three or five years, okay? And that's uh, in line with the topic today, right? You're going to look at that business plan. Where do you want to be in five years? It's easy to set something up that will work for you today, but how is that going to work in five years or when you need a round of investment? 
What about the, the free zones? I haven't been to Abu Dhabi for a few weeks, but when I did, whenever you're driving past the Kizad free zone in either direction, you get the big billboards, don't you? So, and it's, it's just how, kind of close to the airport, isn't it? Big billboards saying, set up your free zone company in Kizad from, I don't know, whatever price it is, 10, 15,000 yeah. dirhams. It, how viable an option is that? It's it's all right. I mean, the thing I would say is in Abu Dhabi, they don't really have the focus on free zones in the same way that we have in Dubai and in the Northern Emirates where they've got them. So um, I find it's quite cheap to set up in Abu Dhabi in general in the mainland, a little bit less than Dubai. So it's not it's not a viable option. Typically, you find that the free zones, both uh, Mazdar and Kazar are not... Um, uh, you know, not I wouldn't say they're not commercially aware, but they are not trying to attract business day in day out like you would find in Dubai. They have a couple of anchor clients, some big shipping companies or logistic companies, and they're they're, they're pretty much created to cater to that. Yeah, I mean, I'm driving around Kizad, and it's an extraordinary place. But you know, you go past the world's biggest chicken factory, don't you? <laughs> and it's that kind of thing that I typically yeah. associate with Kazad rather than a. Freelance accountants, and, and that and that's why they're there. They're there to to cater to that one or two big you know, big client that don't want to be in the mainland. So the 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 government have really helped uh, and been flexible and created a free zone for these specific purposes. Let's talk about a Dubai-based company. I think you were just listening to Mark from Sawa talking about raising. $15 million. He's got that burning a hole in his pocket this morning. Not bad. It, I wish it was me. I'd do as well. I'd be out of here, mate. <laughs> you wouldn't have anyone to talk to. It's $15 million, joking apart. It's their Series B round of fundraising. And even though they're a Dubai-based company, they're based at the FinTech Hive down in, in DIFC. They're one of the kind of standard bearers for it. The money's come from Abu Dhabi, from Mabadala. What do you make of this one? Uh, well... Uh, Regarding the investment, I don't know the ins and outs, but I mean, I've had a look at Sarwa as a company, right? And as a bit of a novice investor myself, I can see why they're attractive because uh, it looks so simple and easy to invest. They're not they're not confusing you with with a lot of jargon, and that's historically I think what expat investors got. You know what happened to them? They were confused with jargon. Um, a lot of companies may have taken advantage back in the day, uh, but now you know that this looks like a fantastic opportunity, and I think that they're very, very. What I can see from when I looked at them, uh, they're very transparent in fees, so everything's disclosed up front, which is fantastic. They are. I mentioned that they're they're based down at the incubator, the the high they call it down at DIFC, yeah. and and many places have different incubators. I know this Shira in Sharjah does a really good job. Abu Dhabi Global Market has got one. There are lots of them around. For you guys at Virtue Zone, how has your relationship with these incubators evolved over the years? Yeah, we've got we've got a fantastic relationship, particularly with DIFC. Um, we, I would say we're in weekly contact with them, and, and probably once or twice a week we will get an inquiry from somewhere in Europe for someone who does want to come here and start some sort of kind of fintech uh, startup. But what I would say is, um, as an inve- as, a, as a potential investor, is if if, if the, the company you're thinking of investing with are in DIFC and the fintech hive. Um, they are reputable. They've they've jumped through a lot of hoops to get there, so they've been properly vetted by DIFC, uh, and you know it's a little bit more secure than in other places in the GCC. Last story we're going to look at today: Dubai SME. That's an agency of Dubai Economy mandated to develop the the SME sector. It's hosting the first meeting of the Dubai Business Incubator Network, made up of certified business incubators and accelerators. Of course, these things they compete. They're competing for companies but they're looking to collaborate and cooperate as well. What do you make of this one? Yeah, you're, you're right. They do compete. And, you know, you find that 
not just these guys. I mean, Dubai SME is as is an agency of, of Dubai Economy. So is Dubai FDI. They have a few others in there, and they all compete with each other, right? Um, they've all got the same goal, and that's to attract investment here in the country. Uh, so what, what you find is uh, Dubai SME is part of that, that great ecosystem, right? The, the DED help you set up the company. Dubai SME help you grow. Then they have Dubai Exports. They help you then take your business to another country, which is fantastic, right? You don't get that in other places. So they want kind of homegrown businesses here in Dubai to succeed uh, globally. So they've got that fantastic ecosystem that, that, that we're part of, right? Because we're a formal partner with them. Um, so, so it's something that you don't see in other countries. And I've seen that other GCC countries are trying to kind of replicate that a little bit. Paul, our big talking point today is business plans. Are they a valuable business tool or just a load of nonsense? We've got a Twitter poll going this morning, and it's actually inspired by an economist in the United States who wrote a book about this called Burn the Business Plan. He's a guy called Carl Schramm, and we're going to hear from him now. I'm going to ask you your opinion on business plans, which way you'd vote in our Twitter poll or which way you did vote in the Twitter poll. But first of all, this is the guy who wrote the book Burn the Business Plan. If you look at all of our major corporations, for example, the old corporations, U.S. Steel, General Electric, IBM, American Airlines, etc., and then you come up and look at our newer companies like Amazon, uh, Apple, Facebook, uh, Microsoft, none of these companies ever had a business plan before they got started. So empirically, it appears as if you don't need a business plan. Second, the business planning process is largely generated as a preview for venture capital. Much less than 1% of all brand new companies every year uh, have venture backing of any kind from an angel investor or from a formal venture fund. So I largely view the creation of a business plan as something of a waste of time. The third problem is that it seems to uh, make starting a business somewhat like a cookbook. If you do this, and then you do this, and then you do this, the cake will come out okay. That's really not how it happens. So that's his view. What's your view, Paul? I think they're important, right? And a a lot of people will come and see us without a business plan. What they will have is a concept or a notion for an idea, um, but maybe not necessarily a 100-page document um, detailing every single penny that's coming and going for that company. Um, I think you need them. Um, I don't think they need to be as in-depth. I think you you can have it as a work in progress throughout. And you, you always need to be kind of nimble, uh, light on your feet, so that you can change it and adapt it. Because you might think you might you might have uh, an idea and it doesn't quite work out in that way, but you go down a slightly different route. So you need to you need to be adaptable. I think it's important to have them, but don't marry it. Don't be don't don't think that it's set in stone and that's the only thing that you have to follow. I um the the Twitter poll this morning, most people agree with you. Seventy eight percent are saying yes, business plans rock. Only twenty two percent say burn the business plan. I was telling the story to to Sonal earlier on this morning when we were talking about this. I had a business plan about 12 or 13 years ago, set up a company called Talk Media that made corporate videos. And it was fine. But the business plan, I remember the business plan, exit after four years, I was going to sell to a Brage Capital or a big PR firm for 25 million dirhams. Um, and I, I joked with Sonal, Abrage made a lot of bad decisions yeah. over the years, but they didn't make that one. <laughs> they weren't that bad. Uh, the 25 million dirhams is still sitting in the bank account of, of someone who never bought that business plan because it was just it was just a plan it was on paper to spend too much time writing a business plan when i should have been out selling and building a business yeah i think you know that makes sense and that that tends to be the thing that 
you know, we, we, we tell people when they come in the door, right, is don't spend too much time focused on where to set up the company and how to set it up. Let us do that. Focus on delivering the product and service. Start to grow the brand, grow the image, make a little bit of cash, and then you might be able to raise some funds. You're back with Starting Up with Tom Urquhart and Zone. Only on Dubai I 103.8. Very warm welcome back. Richard Dean in for Tom Urquhart today and indeed for the next three weeks as well. Co-host today is Paul Bryson, Group Commercial Director at Virtue Zone. Paul, thanks for sticking around with us. Thank you very much for having us. Join the conversation now. Conversation continues. We're talking about business plans, whether you need them, and if so, how to make a good one. Shane Shin is the co-founding partner of Sharuk Partners. It's an investment company, a venture capital company. He joins us now on the line and indeed on Microsoft Teams. Shane, good morning. Good morning, everyone. So you must have seen a lot of business plans in your time. You are a partner at Sharuk Partners, a seed stage venture capital fund with a focus on technology. You were named a couple of years ago on the Forbes Middle East's 30 under 30 list. And your portfolio of companies at Sharuk, well, there's 20 or 30 of them that I'm looking at. Joy Gifts is one of them. Uh, Another one is a company we've been talking about this morning, Sawa, the investment platform. We'll get to that in a second. But first of all, business plans. Our Twitter poll is asking, should we burn the business plan or are they a valuable and vital business tool? Which way are you voting, Shane? They're absolutely uh, essential, especially if you want to share your journey and vision with the investors, right? And the more crisp and articulate and the more bottoms up, not only uh, top down, like it's really critical. Okay, so we the, the the guy we heard from, the economist in the United States who wrote the book Burn the Business Plan, Carl Schramm, says that's fine if you're going for venture capital investment, then they're important. But he makes the point that in the United States, less than 1% of companies ever go for institutional investments such as venture capital. Most of them are just organically funded. I know you're in the venture business, but more broadly, do you think they're valuable, even for people who aren't pitching to guys like you for funding? So I actually, uh, in complete alignment with, uh, with the author, so uh, venture capital route is not the only route. And actually, there are many ways of uh, being successful and getting to your North Star, right? And there are certain ways the founders think, the way certain technology companies scale, and this is where the VC capital is the best. And our expertise as Shurok also is uh, pivotal. But if you are not looking for venture capital funding, I believe that's absolutely fine. And there are other ways. And actually, I can also even argue that coming from uh, old uh, PE days, you actually do not need a venture capital. Sometimes it can actually hurt you. Right. Coming from a venture capitalist. Okay, fine. So with that a given, let's look at business plans and how to make a good one. What do you like to see in a business plan and what do you want to see omitted from a business plan? So uh, first, uh, the business plan is a very uh, generic uh, word. Right. Uh, But if a founder is and also really depends on what business, if we're talking about fintech to agritech like Pro Harvest, where I know uh, you guys hosted a few times or like Starwatt, a very different business plan. However, what as a founders you need to be looking for is what is uh, the fundamental healthiness of my business plan? For example, what is the revenue model? But you cannot always just be selling the vision or dream and without having a single dollar of revenue. But actually, unfortunately, this uh, this can be uh, is possible in the U.S. or in Asia, where there are like a Facebook, a Google type of world who will buy you just from the uh, MAU monthly active users, but they will just buy you from your top line. 
But definitely in the emerging market, you need to have a healthy, fundamentally sound business. What that means is what is your revenue model? What is the price times quantity? Right? What is your retention rate of the customers? What is how much are you spending on marketing? How much are you spending on uh, sales? So after you build all that fundamentally uh, sound business, you will actually be able to drive your solid business plan. And by doing that, you can drive how much you need capital. Right? Do you need $5 million? Do you need $10 million? At what point? Right? So being able to articulate this type of uh, in, uh, complex business model and they're able to convince your vision to the investors, that's really what we're looking for. And then, right. and then, and I Shane, think how, a lot how, more specifics on fintech to others. How, how would how uh, flexible do you think businesses need to be around their business plan? Yeah, do they need to follow that? Uh, do they need to set it in stone, or, or do they need to be flexible if something changes uh, down the line? <laughs> so I can tell you, uh, Richard Paul, that uh, I've never seen a business that actually follows their business plan. <laughs> so, yeah. so we see about two thousand five hundred companies a year. So I should we probably some more than ten thousand so far. There's not a single time that followed the business plan. So, and we expect that. However, having no plan is still not good. You should have a plan and that be adaptable and change, especially during COVID, right? Especially every round is different. And in our region where Saudi and UAE, Egypt, Pakistan, every country is different. So like all this uh, mentor exercise or desktop exercise only good for you to have a thesis. But you need to adapt, and we also look mm. at that adaptability as how strong the company is. Yeah, I think that makes that makes complete sense, right? It's just a it's just a map to get you on that road, and then you're going to kind of deviate a little bit, but you'll get to the same destination kind of down the line. Can we talk about the clarity yes. of a business plan? You you need those numbers, you need the detail to be there. Of course, if you're going to ask someone for five, ten, fifteen million dollars, but this issue of of clarity of the message, I've been told for people who visited Sequoia Capital in the United States, one of the world's biggest venture capital investment firms, they say they got a big sign on the wall saying you have to be able to articulate what it is you do in 10 words or less. Unless you can do that, don't come in here asking for money. I don't know if that's an apocryphal story, if it's actually true, but I think that the, the general sentiment probably holds true. What's your view, Shane? Uh, absolutely. Like uh, the, another example I give is uh, from my understanding, the U.S., uh, the budget, everything can be summarized in two pages. So if you can summarize trillions of dollars of plan in a page or two, you should be able to summarize your early stage vision, frankly, in a paragraph or in, a, let's say, in 10 words. I think 10 words, someone needs to be really a master of craft, but uh, you get the gist of it, right? And uh, now to tie it back with the business plan, this is why... Uh, as much as the business plan is sound, we do want to see it just to challenge and test the assumptions so that someone has done the homework. But at the end, when we have backed like guys like Sour and Pure Harvest, frankly, there was no business plan. We really backed them so early. You're really banking the vision, the founders and the, the thesis behind it. Right. And they were able to explain in a few words. That's interesting. Well, we're talking about SAWA today. I mean, I know you'll have signed confidentiality agreements, so there'll be a lot that you can't tell us. But from what you can tell us, I mean, they've got $15 million today from, uh, from Mabadala. That's Series B fundraising. What was it about a company like SAWA that stood out to you from the 2,500 yeah. companies a year that, that come across your door at, at Sharuk? 
So just to provide the context, so we are extremely blessed to, to be the first institutional investor in Zara back in 2017. So we let their seed round, let their pre-Series A, uh, brought a Kipco to lead their Series A, we invested again. And then now Mubadala led their Series B where also we invested. And Mubadala is also our uh, LP, right? So Sarwa back in 2017 and uh, even to this day, we knew that uh, what was the most important things. First, the founders, they can really adapt well with the regulation. FinTech businesses are different from platform or software. You need to really know how the regulation is playing out. And they were the very first recipient of something called innovation testing license, ITL from DIFC. They was the first ever FinTech accelerator in the region. So we knew that our regulation, our regulated landscape, we were getting ready for FinTechs. And Sarawa, we were well positioned to be the first one to get all the spotlight, okay? And also second, we knew that thesis made a lot of sense in the region, but virtually all the millennials, they don't have an option to invest. Like uh, people like us who know how to invest actively on stocks, bonds, for FX, we're a bit uh, unique on that. A lot of, most people do not know how to even open a brokerage account, and especially in our region. So we wanted to provide the solution where millennials can invest without thinking too actively, but they have a lot of savings. They can just invest passively through Sarwa, right? So as long as we can execute well, the thesis was powerful, Sarwa was the very first one to capture to this uh, blue ocean market. And now uh, they have been growing extremely well with uh, hundreds of millions of dollars on the AUM. I think you just described me down to a T there as a millennial that doesn't even know how to open a brokerage account. Um, but I wouldn't say I've got loads of savings uh, burning a hole in my pocket. Um, but what you did say there, Shane, is you guys took a bit of a punt, right? A bit of a gamble um, on, on Sarwa there, right? So how... Uh, what are the other ways in which a startup could grab your attention other than a business plan? Yeah. <laughs> First, uh, just to qualify, we don't take gamble, we take risks. I <laughs> 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 just, uh, just wanted to say that small qualification. So always, uh, uh, I believe, and perhaps I'm wrong, we do respond 100% to the emails. And uh, you can just, the uh, emails, we are accessible. And also, this is one of the ways we assess the founders Pieces and the whole Shuru team, we are accessible in conferences to the LinkedIn to frankly just uh, being out there. And the founders, it is part of a sales job. So if you cannot get a way to uh, grab attention to the investors, including Shuru, like it's probably not the best time. We definitely respond to all emails. LinkedIn messages, I'm terrible at it just because there's just too many. However, the best way is normally through warm referral through our founders. We have back more than 70 founders. And you can see in our website, which arguably is not the best, we are revamping it. We have back more than 35 companies, more than 70 uh, founders. So uh, please get in touch with us through the founders or other VCs or other investor networks, or just a cold email, we'll make sure to respond. Shane, and you can just direct the chain. Shane, it's great talking to you. Really appreciate your time this morning. Fascinating insights. Thank you for sharing them. That is the voice of Shane Shin joining us on the line from Abu Dhabi. He's a co-founding partner with Sharuk Partners. His thoughts on the importance of a business plan. In short, Paul, he's a fan, isn't he? He is, and I wish we could have spoken to him for a little bit longer because I wanted some tips on where I could put my cash. Ah, well, then <laughs> stick around because we've got Hazel Jackson of Biz Group joining us in the second half of the show. You're listening to Starting Up with Tom Urquhart and Virtue Zone on Dubai Eye 103.8.
Everyone, welcome back. You are listening to Starting Up. Where's Tom Urquhart? I hear you say. Tom Urquhart is in Miami and he's going to be there for the next two or three weeks. So myself, Richard Dean, I'm going to be in the Starting Up chair with the guys from Virtue Zone for the next three weeks. My guest today is Paul Bryson, Group Commercial Director at Virtue Zone. Paul, it's good to have you with us. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you very much. Second week in a row, loving it. <laughs> you going yeah. to go for the hat-trick next week? Yeah. Well, it's looking likely. Uh, I think so. I think uh, after the SEMA performance, I think it'll be hard to take me off. Right? <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about business plans today, aren't we? And whether or not they're useful and what we should do with them. Um, Shane, who we spoke to from Sharoot Partners, venture capitalist, he's a big fan. He says you need one. Be prepared to pivot. But his conclusion was that you need one. And you'd be broadly similar? Yeah, I'd say that's... It's going to be anyone's advice, right? It makes sense, right? Because that business is your, your, you know, your journey, right? And how, how, how can you be on a journey if you don't know where you're going? And I think that business plan just gives you that, that rough guide of the direction in which you're going. But be prepared to flip on it at any moment. Joining us on the line now to give us her perspective is <coughs> Hazel Jackson. She is the founder of Biz Group, a training and coaching company based here in Dubai. Morning, Hazel. Good morning, Richard. Morning, Paul. Morning, Hazel. Good to have you with us. I think I know the answer because I've known you a long time, Hazel, but business plans for or against? Um, Definitely for. I think anything as complex and as complicated as starting a business uh, requires you to take some time, sit down, write down your thoughts, because as you do that, it just gets better and better as you go through iterations of writing those reports and writing down your ideas. So if we think back to not when you started Biz Group or Bizability, as I think it was then, you, the year before, did you have a business plan? Or did you have a business plan <laughs> in your drawer for three years beforehand and you're thinking, I really must start this company? Or, or no, did it just happen you know, organically? As they say, you know, doctors have uh, sick children and a cobbler has holes in their shoes. Of course, I'm telling you, you should have a business plan. Um, I didn't have one back in 1992 when I started my business. I had an idea. Um, and I don't think I even knew how to formulate that idea. I just saw a gap in the market. Um, but I did do a couple of things which I think are really important that are part of your business plan. Um, first of all, I, I clearly identified who my core customer was, who I thought I could solve a problem for that perhaps wasn't already in the market. And I had a very clear definition of that core customer and I sought out meeting those people and finding out how I could refine my idea so that I could solve a problem that they had that nobody else could solve. So so I didn't necessarily have a written down business plan, but I did have a very clear picture of my core customer. One of the things that, um, or just, just to clarify, we were joking earlier with uh, with Paul, I had a, a business plan about 13 years ago for a, a company called Talk Media that did some video um, production work. The business plan called for an exit after four years selling to a brash capital for 25 million dirhams. You will not be surprised to know that did <laughs> <Ambitious>. not happen. <laughs> so that, that, did, that didn't really work out. The, the, the successful business we do have in my family is my wife's business. It's a design business. It's cool. 25 yeah. people now and it's doing well. But that just started it, you know, literally in the spare room after our second child she went freelance got one project got another one and, and it grew organically so there was no business plan but I tell you what there was and I think you might like this when it comes to how do you structure a business plan we used a book and I think maybe you gave it to me it was the um the Rockefeller Habits by Vern Harnish yes. which I think is now called the Gazelles program scaling up Sca- yes, scaling, scaling up. up is the new version of that book uh, and yeah. we and we did some work with that and that was really really useful after after kind of two or three years of just growing organically and winging it and then we got an office and that was fine and we did spend some time okay so what is our proposition what makes us different there's a million design companies in in Dubai around the world that was really really useful talk us through tools like that because when it comes yeah. to a business plan there are templates there are tools aren't there 
Absolutely. And I think um, in the center of the scaling up or the gazelles methodology is a one page strategic plan. And the idea there is you've really thought deeply about a handful of questions that can help you shape what your business is going to look like and what your company is going to focus on both long term goals like selling to a branch for 25 billion, but also some of the shorter term goals that help you grow. One of my favorite tools for a startup business um, is something called the sweat SWT. Now, not to be confused with the SWOT, which is very hard to do when you have no business at all and you're just thinking of an idea. A SWOT is about looking at the industry you're planning to go into. So, for example, in interior design for your wife's business, Richard, would be looking at that industry in, in the UAE or wider GCC region and looking at the strengths of that industry, what actually makes that industry work and basically what you need to be good at just to survive the general industry strengths. But you also look at the industry weaknesses and what are the current things that perhaps all of the other design firms are doing, but they're bottlenecks to, for clients. They're difficult for clients to get used to. They are the industry industry weaknesses. And if you can solve one of those, you can maybe have a really differentiated business. But what we also think you should look at is the trends and the trends of your industry for the next three to five years. Because if you aren't on top of or ahead of some of those trends, then you're just going to be an also ran business. Now, that sweat can be used for a startup um, organization, but also I do it every year for our business, looking at what are the future trends? What do we need to be ahead of in order to be able to, 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 to stay in the industry and be successful? So I think that's one of the really powerful starting tools that people can focus on. And I think you actually hit the nail on the head there, uh, Hazel, at the start when you said when you were planning to enter the market, you, you, you had this solution to a problem and, and often People don't have that. They create, they come and see us. We see them every day. They come with a product, but it's not really a solution to a problem. Yes, it might be a nice little product, but is it going to sell? And it's only going to sell if it's a solution to someone's problem. Uh, and I think Absolutely. you hit the nail on the head there. Now, as we are talking about business plans, mm -hmm. how often do you think people need to revisit the business plan? Have a look at it. Make sure they're on point and perhaps adapt. Should they look at it regularly or wait until something goes wrong? <laughs> Definitely look at it regularly. It's it's your guide. But like any guide, um, these days when you've got Google Maps getting you from point A to point B, sometimes it gives you some options and changes the route slightly because it might be slightly better. Um, and you, you can override that or you can go with that new data that has been fed in. Businesses are moving so fast, so so now and industries are moving fast so you have to keep re-looking at your plan um, i like to kind of like have that end goal that big hairy audacious goal as jim collins would call it or that kind of like inspirational goal or that 10x goal that's where you're going but the route to get there might change depending on what's happening in the industry so we personally look at our strategic plan or our business plan every quarter um, and we might not be changing some of the bigger goals but we might be changing tactics in order to be able to get to what we plan to do in 2021 and then we might be changing the bigger goals at the end of 21 in order to be able to get to where we want to get to in five years so so i think they've become more iterative paul hmm. you know it used to be do a five-year plan you know let it gather dust behind you and pick it back up for your next five-year strategic plan i think now you should be looking at things quarterly minimum possibly even monthly um depending on what kind of industry you're in i think that's that's actually a really good point and and, and we actually changed partly last year during during covid we pivoted a little bit internally and in, and in not only our pricing structure but also 
how we look at our, our monthly and quarterly quota. We broke we broke it down to weekly and two weekly, mm-hmm. just to make sure that we were on point to achieve what we wanted to achieve at the end of the month, and the end of the quarter. Yeah, and I think that you know when things change like COVID or your industry might be changing very quickly, um, you have to revert from what you thought it had a a vision for in the next 12 months to, okay, let's keep looking at things every month and adapt. And I think, you know, writing a business plan is good discipline or writing a strategic plan is good discipline, but they are iterative documents. They shouldn't then be something that you kind of like hold on to and deliver exactly what you thought you should have done 12 months ago and then fail. They are something you should revisit. And that's one of the other reasons why I think writing something down is important because you might not want to receive other people's feedback, but by giving them that document, it opens up the opportunity for them to to share back what they think. Now, I don't think you should always listen to all the naysayers, or I believe no business would ever start. But find people like yourselves, Paul, in Virtue Zone, other advisors who can read your plan and and perhaps give you some advice or ask some more difficult questions to help you refine it even further. And finally, Hazel, you've talked a lot, and Paul's talked quite a bit about having to tweak the business plan or pivot is one way of looking at it. If we look at, at biz group today and if we look at the kind of the the pie chart of your revenues and the different bits of biz and where that revenue comes from how different is that from the biz group of say i don't know is it five years ago that you moved into your 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 office up at international media production zone how has it changed Mm -hmm. since then um, great question, Richard. I mean, we had a fledgling back five years ago, a fledgling learning technology business, um, and the majority of our revenue was coming from face-to-face training and face-to-face team building and engagement events. I would say now that that learning technology business is 50% of our, our revenue, and it was probably less than five, five years ago. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because technology's taken over and it's all, the rest of the business has, has pivoted and become a lot more virtual and online. But the emphasis on providing integrated solutions that use MS Teams or that have a long tail of curation of learning content, um, reinforcement, all of those things have really been the change in our business. And, and interestingly enough, to go back to the sweat, I identified a change probably about eight years ago. And in our sweat, in our trend section, we talked about finding a subscription-based tool that could actually change the revenue stream in our business and would provide learning technology. Um, and so, so we spotted it then and went out to find it rather than it found us. Um, and so I, that's why I find that tool so powerful to stay current. Hazel, it is always nice talking to you. Nice to see you as well on Microsoft Teams this morning rather than just a phone I interview. I wish I could see you too, Richard. Uh, well, we, we, we can meet up now, can't we? So we'll meet up for a cup of coffee soon. But for now, Hazel, thanks so much indeed for joining us. Is it your 30th anniversary of the company next year? Next year, it will be 30 years, yes. And well, maybe we can come and chat at Expo. I'm so excited about you being based there. That's going to be awesome. Hazel Jackson of Biz Group, really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us on Starting Up. And thanks for tolerating me rather than Tom Urquhart in the chair this morning. Join the conversation. If you want to get in touch, you can do so in a couple of different ways. 4001, the good old-fashioned text message still works. You can message us for free if you download the ARM Play app. And you can take our Twitter poll. Do business plans work or should we burn our business plans at Dubai I want to FM. You're back with Starting Up with Tom Urquhart and Virtuzone. Only on Dubai I 103.8.
A very warm welcome back. You are listening to Starting at Richard Dean with you through to 11 o'clock this morning. And also, we've got Paul Bryson, Group Commercial Director of Virtue Zone, starting up with Virtue Zone. Hey, Paul. Hello, uh, thanks for having us. We've got the 10-minute countdown every 10-minute warning to get your questions in for Company Clinic. Yes, exactly, yeah. Um, but just very quickly, your thoughts on, on what Hazel had to say there. I talked about, we, we're talking about business plans. Do they work, do they not work? The consensus from Hazel was that, yes, they do. From Shane Shin as well at Sharut was that, broadly speaking, yes, they do. You have to be able to pivot. One point I made to her was having a template or having a guide when I did a business, kind of a business plan or a business analysis with our design consultancy five or six years for less than that we used a template we used Vern Harnish as a kind of SME guru he's got books on this stuff other people have got books do you believe in those kind of templates or or books or should it be more organic no I think they they are there are core foundations which everyone should follow I mean we absolutely love it when a client comes in and they've got a business plan um, often they'll come have no plan and just to a product or a service so if you've got the plan it's fantastic it gets you going a lot faster but as you said you guys didn't really have it kind of set in stone right it kind of it just kind of happened a little bit as you, as you, as you said yeah. earlier um, and we, we I've seen that with quite a few clients where um, you know they've grown to be so big and they had no clue and and you you thought they're not going to be successful right <laughs> you think they're not going to do well they're not ready and They've just completely, you know, they've been booming. So we, we, I think it's important to have one just to kind of get you going on the right foot. Yes, absolutely. Right, let's get to some questions. Company Clinic. Company Clinic. Arzu has written in with this one, Paul. Does it matter where I get my trade license? For example, if I register in Fujera, will I have trouble operating in Abu Dhabi? Um, yeah, it matters where you get the license. We... Uh, we issue quite a lot of Fujera trade licenses. Typically, you'll find that that will be in the service sector, and most of those services can take place online or in the cloud, so they can be deemed as taking place in Fujera at the time. If you're based in Abu Dhabi, can you use the services of someone with a Fujera company as long as it's a service? Yeah, absolutely. However, if you're going to be trading uh, products or you want to engage with government bodies in Abu Dhabi, you will need an Abu Dhabi trade license. But we need to know more about your company to point you in the right direction there. Raymond has written in, with the new rules, you don't need a local partner to set up on the mainland. Does this apply to businesses set up before the new rule was announced? If yes, what's the procedure for parting ways with your local partner? Uh, (laughs) Interesting question. Thanks, Raymond. Uh, Yeah, putting us on the spot there. But uh, initially the plan was that no, it could not apply to pre-existing businesses. Now that's changed. It does apply to pre-existing businesses. So you can own the company 100% if you fall under uh, a list of predefined activities and predefined legal forms of the company. So by all means, show it to us. You need to have a really good amicable relationship with your local partner because bear in mind, they do own shares in the business and they have to give those shares to you. So um, you can't forcibly take them. Um, So I guess you need to get a little bit of advice on that. What I would say is not to jump into it because we've seen companies that have set up on their own 100% with no local struggle when it comes to visas, bank accounts. So immigration don't really understand how it's working yet, how you can be an LLC without a local. So you can find it difficult to get a visa. So we've we've been setting up companies where we act as a 10% local partner just to make it easy and practical for them rather than take the 51% as initially we had to do. I mean, I'm going through this at the moment. We are the, our, our design firm going from a free zone company where we've been for six years, moving to an onshore company because you can have 100% foreign ownership. 
It's just quite a lot of hoops to jump through migrating a business from free zone to onshore. It's yeah. doable, but there's a lot of hoops. Yeah, it's doable. You have to be prepared for that. And I think we can, uh, if you come and see us for that, or, or anyone that knows what they're doing, we'll set your expectation there and tell you, look, it's going to take a lot longer than you think it's going to be. This is, it. And they'll give you an accurate timeline. And we tend to give you a timeline where we give a little two or three day buffer so we can try and over deliver on it. Um, we're never going to tell you you can do it in two weeks, but it's going to take two months. But typically it is going to take probably a couple of months uh, to do it. They don't, corporate migration isn't really understood properly here in the region uh, as it is in other places. Um, you know, you can migrate your company out of a free zone into another country like Hong Kong, and then you can migrate your Hong Kong company back into Dubai, but you can't can't migrate from one free zone to the other or free zone to mainland. You have to close a company and, and open a new one, transfer your visas, transfer, you're not even transfer, you're cancelling visas. You're cancelling visas, yeah. So we, we've got the new company set up now and they're going to run in parallel for probably several months while we do the transition. Yeah, and I think you have to just grin and bear it for a little bit there because what you'll find is uh, people always want to do this when the stars are aligned, right? Your visas are never going to expire the same time your trade license <laughs> expires. So you need to take a hit at some point. It will be much better in the long run. And sometimes it'll overlap, you know. Once you've paid for that visa, it's valid for three years in the free zone, you might need to cancel it with a year and a half left and just take the financial hit. Rima's written in, how can I sell my product on the mainland if I have a free zone company? And I guess the key word there is product, isn't it, rather than service? Yeah, definitely. You've, you've, you've nailed it there. Yeah, so if it's a physical and tangible product and you're based in a free zone, um, legally you can only do business inside of that free zone or globally, the rest of the world, you can sell your product anywhere, just not in the mainland of Dubai, Abu Dhabi and the other Emirates. If you do want to sell it, you will need to engage a mainland company to act as your local distributor. So they'll have to import that company, that uh, product from your free zone company and then distribute in the mainland. It is doable, but it means that you take a hit in your margins. So it might be worth now, with the change in regulation, might be worth setting up a mainland company rather than a free zone company. Okay, so don't have a free zone company. I guess it depends what, you, what you're selling, isn't it? And I know Barrett Butty is a good mate of mine, the guy who owns Canaris. He's got a big steel mill in Jebel Ali. I mean, that, that, that is an enormous scale, isn't it? It's hundreds of millions yeah. of dollars a year. Well, he's not going anywhere. That's, gonna, <laughs> yeah. that's definitely going to stay there. That's not going to come in the mainland. Um, there's no import and export, there's no import duty there in Jebel Ali, which is fantastic. So he can do his work there. If he was in the mainland, he'd still need to pay to import uh, raw materials. Um, so, so he can still do everything down there. Um, I would say that nothing's going to change in that regard. And, you know, it, our free zone is less attractive is really where we're going. Um, not really. They've, they've still got the same attractiveness. It's, it's the mainland that's now become way more attractive and where you want to set up and it can almost be cheaper and easier to set up in the mainland than it is and to buy free zones and if you if we look at the the the, the companies that virtue zone mm. is setting up on a i don't know a, a monthly basis yeah. it's going to be my second pie chart question of the of the week i promise no more in the yeah. next two three weeks but what what what's the pie chart looking at in terms of free zone versus mainland and how different would that have been i don't know three years ago that's a good even maybe more than three years but let's say we set up between three and 500 companies a month, right? right. 300 be a kind of poor to average month, 500 is a good month, right? And we've had some kind of record months through COVID. So it's been great in the, in the Emirates for, for entrepreneurship. I would say 70% historically, we're always free zone and 30% mainland. And that is getting closer and closer. Okay, it's starting to narrow that gap. Equally, if you look at it, you'll see that free zone pricing is starting to come down a little bit. 
because they're trying to be more attractive. So it's great for the consumer. It's great for the entrepreneur and for business owners because they are getting more bang for their buck than ever before. So you'll find that free zone prices are coming down, mainland prices are coming down. It's never been easier, cheaper and faster to set up a business than it is now. Arnold's baking cookies, he wants to sell them, doesn't have a lot of money for a license. What's the cheapest license that would allow him to sell his cookies? Uh, we get a similar question almost every week. Um, you can't bake them at home, that's for sure. It has to be in a Dubai municipality approved kitchen. Um, probably some sort of catering license in the mainland and then you use a dark kitchen somewhere rent out space and use uh, delivery or someone else as a fulfillment partner to deliver the product my friend zora koreshi formerly of dubai i does a business just like that i can put you in touch with her arnold we're out of time paul thank you very much indeed thank you very much great to be here it's been great being with you thanks very much indeed this is starting up with virtue zone we are back next week tuesday at 10